Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at Costa Rica Travel Pass dot com or calling one eight seven 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 eight zero seven two seven seven. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. discussion. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also find this podcast on iTunes or at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. Today I want to talk about faith crisis, but I want to do it from a different perspective. We've been addressing those who struggle, but today I want to talk to the leaders of the church not the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. They're already well aware of these issues and are trying to stem them the best they can. But I want to speak today to the lay leaders of the church, the bishops and stake presidents, those who serve on high councils, those who serve as elders quorum presidencies and high priest groups. I hope to help you to understand this phenomenon of people struggling with their testimonies and what exactly goes into a faith crisis. Some of you are right away beginning to think, why are we even addressing this? This is not a big problem. This is not something that is cankering the entire church. But I would share with you that there is a problem. Elder Marlon Jensen, the former historian of the church, was a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy, worked closely with the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, went and did a discussion interview at a university in Virginia. He was asked by somebody in that discussion, has the church seen the effects of Google on membership? And then this person continued to say, it seems like the people who I talk to about church history are people who find out and leave quickly. Is the church aware of that problem? What about the people who are already leaving in droves? Elder Jensen stated, the 15 men really do know, and they really care, and they realize that maybe since Kirtland, we never have had a period of, I'll call it apostasy, like we're having right now largely over these issues. So the first thing I wanted to say was this. It is a serious issue. If you were to go online and check out some of the discussion boards where people go who are struggling, so one of them is stayLDS.com, another one is newordermormon.org, and you will and you could go to exmormon.org or uh, postmormon.org, and you could take a look at those individuals who either are struggling in their testimonies, have come to different conclusions over encountering difficult issues in history, 
or those who have just flat out left the church over this same stuff. And unfortunately, our leaders in the church are way too ill-prepared to handle it. I think the first thing we need to do is come to a understanding that sometimes the way we are taught the gospel is not the gospel. And so I want to acknowledge first and foremost that even within the church, there is incorrect or false doctrine. Now, I'm not saying that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve have put across teachings that are false doctrine. What I'm saying is that a leader here or there, both at the top and among the ward and stakes, sometimes share opinions that become accepted into the general understanding of most members in that area or the church at large. And some of those things are completely incorrect. I'll give one example, but I want to tell you there are dozens of these. The example I want to give is evolution. If you walk into an LDS room of members and ask them what they think of evolution, many of them will say the doctrine of the church is that evolution is wrong. Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you think I'm crazy for even wanting to challenge that. But here's what you run into. We get that belief from Elder Bruce R. McConkie sharing it in his talk, The Seven Deadly Heresies, from sharing it in his, I believe at least the first edition of his book, Mormon Doctrine, as well as from his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, sharing the thought that evolution was wrong while he was a member of the Twelve Apostles. And so these two men have proliferated through the church the belief that evolution is wrong, that it's a heresy, that it's contrary to the gospel. Now, for the record, I don't care whether evolution is true or false, and I would share that you're free to believe either way. But the fact of the matter is, is that when the First Presidency has released an official statement on evolution, and they've released two, one before Joseph Fielding Smith and one after, both official policies on evolution essentially state that the church has no official policy on evolution. Even somewhat recently, back when President Hinckley was president of the church, this comment was made. The official LDS church position has remained steady from a 1931 first presidency statement to a 1993 packet handed out at BYU students. Leave geology, biology, archaeology, and anthropology, none of which has to do with the salvation of souls of mankind, to scientific research. In other words, leave the gospel to the church and leave science to scientists. And yet, we found that in the history of the church, from time to time, somebody somebody ends up sharing their opinion in such a format as to put it across as doctrine. Now, there are dozens of these kinds of situations where something is believed by members of the church because a leader here or there, local or general, taught it, and yet in reality it's not part of the official doctrine. And so there's this framework that lots of people set up. Even to some extent, I set that up, and I would bet you have set that up. And when we set up this false framework, then all of a sudden, when we discover a bunch of things that don't match up with the actual doctrine of the church, we feel like, for instance, with evolution, that we have to make a stand, that we've been told evolution is false, that's the doctrine. And if we encounter evidence that evolution is possible, and perhaps we even go so far as to study it out and find that for ourselves that we believe it's true, then all of a sudden we're left having to either choose to believe in evolution or choose to believe in, church, in the church. But the gospel doesn't ask us to do that. And again, it's unfortunate, but some individuals have set up that false framework that then becomes a trap for members who encounter new information. The next thing we need to understand, too, is how faith develops. I would recommend for every leader of the church who listens to this to go do a little bit of reading on Fowler's stages of faith. Fowler was a behavioral scientist, and he put a pretty easy-to-understand 
description of how faith develops. I'll say it simply. Most of us get to what he called stage three, and most of us stay there. Stage three is very black and white, very literal. Everything we hear that comes from a leader, we absolutely accept as doctrine. No questions asked, follow the prophet blindly, do what you're told, get in line. And yet, that's not what the church teaches. But yet again, a few individuals have either said that, or have said something in such a way as to be interpreted that way. And so these members who are in this stage three see things as very black and white. Eventually, they'll move on to stage four, which is chaos because they realize stage three just doesn't work. I've given this example before, but I'll share it again because perhaps there are leaders listening to this who have not heard my other podcast. I walked into a ward council one time and asked the ward council, is lying always wrong? Half the room raised their hand and said yes. Lying is always wrong. I then told them a story. You're sleeping in your bed at night. An intruder breaks into your home. You hear the sound of your door being broken open. You hurry up, run across the hall, grab your children, take them back into your room, tell them to go underneath your bed, and tell them not to say a word. The intruder makes his way upstairs. He pulls out a gun, points it at your head, and says, I know you have children here. Where are they? You tell him that your children spent the night at somebody's house. You just lied to him. Was that wrong? Was that sin? Now, maybe some of you are still saying, yep, that's sin, and I would totally disagree with you. And I would ask that you evaluate those thoughts. And understanding then, for those of you who now say, you know what, you're right, lying is not always wrong. It's the same with murder, right? Nephi cut off the head of Laban. Laban was helpless, defenseless, unconscious. And yet Nephi still cut off his head. Murder is not always wrong. Lying is not always wrong. Now, we don't walk around within the church saying it's okay to lie or it's okay to murder. But we have to understand there's a spirit of the law and a letter of the law. And sometimes the two do not coincide. And the only way to know is the Holy Ghost. Those who are in stage four now realize this black and white thinking has is, is not working. It doesn't suffice. They've moved beyond that way of thinking. And this chaos of seeing this black and white not working and still seeing the church in this black and white way of teaching, all of a sudden their testimonies crash. Now, hopefully, if we handle things the right way, if we remove the obstacles, we can help these members transition from stage four into what Fowler called stage five, which is a stage that reconciles everything and puts it back together, reconstructing the building blocks of their faith, while still being in the church and being faithful. When you see it this way, you recognize that a faith struggle is not someone going backwards, but rather someone thinking deeper and moving forward in the way they understand their faith. Once we see it as progression and not regression, we can begin to remove our negative feelings from this process and begin to help this person move ahead. Now this can be, uh, this can be done, but we have to do lots of different things. The next thing you've got to do is confront false expectations and assumptions. And we run into these every Sunday at church. We run into somebody saying something that really isn't the case. So I'll give you some examples. I have heard in my time in the church people teach, and maybe not say it this way, but the way they talk about following the prophet and apostles blindly, regardless of how you feel or think, what it is basically saying is that prophets and apostles are infallible, or always speak for the church when teaching. That is incorrect. The church has always taught us that prophets are only prophets when acting as such, and that we are to be guided by the Holy Spirit in determining what things are true and are not, and then to follow that which the Holy Spirit confirms. I am not telling anybody to walk away and not listen to the prophet. 
But what I'm saying is every one of us are accountable and have a responsibility to pray about the things that our leaders say, both at the general level and at the local level. And as the Holy Ghost testifies and confirms those things to us, even if they, meaning those spiritual impressions, are the opposite of what we individually feel, we should follow them. So, for instance, if my bishop asked me to pay a full tithing, and I don't want to pay a full tithing, but the Spirit tells me that that's the right thing to do, then I'm obligated to do it. This puts the responsibility on the member, not on the prophet or the apostle, because everybody is human and we all make mistakes with the exception of Christ. The next one, mistakes by church leaders have not occurred throughout all dispensations. Now, when we read the scriptures, we see weaknesses in everybody in there. But the trouble comes in in the way that we teach the gospel in our primary, in young men and young women's classes, and even in our adult classes. We make the leaders of the church sound so good. We make Joseph Smith sound like he's so perfect. He's this wonderful boy who who has this vision and who has no real sins of his own. And as he grows up, he always does the right thing and always tries to move the gospel forward. And we don't allow him to be human. We teach the gospel in this very black and white way. And we set up members to see prophets and apostles and church leaders as near-perfect people. That's a mistake. It sets up people for disappointment. And until they go back and look at the Old Testament and New Testament and the Doctrine of Covenants and even realize within the Doctrine of Covenants how many times the Lord had to rebuke Joseph for not being or doing where he should be or what he should do. That's important. The next one is that faith crisis is found primarily among those in the LDS faith. Again, a lot of members see this encountering difficult information as something found primarily among the Mormon faith. What we have to do to fix that is first, using Fowler stages of faith, we right away realize that Fowler is showing a process that goes across the board of faith, not within Christianity, not within any certain religion, but just in general, how we each transition. And as we do that, we come to a conclusion then, and also by just maybe doing some research on other faiths and those that leave and those that go back, we realize that faith crisis is something that happens to all who continually work to grow their faith and seek to strengthen it. They're all going to have struggles. The next one is the Book of Mormon as the most correct book. This implies there's no room for spelling, grammar, linguistic errors. We have to be careful in how we describe the Book of Mormon as the most correct book. When Joseph said that, he didn't intend for that to mean that the book was translated perfectly. In fact, Joseph himself made many corrections to the Book of Mormon. And even after Joseph died, hundreds if not thousands of other spelling errors and grammatical errors were fixed. The purpose in saying the Book of Mormon is the most correct book is that it most simply, most thoroughly, teaches the doctrine of Christ, the basic pieces of the plan of salvation, better than any book of Scripture. That is what makes the Book of Mormon the most correct book. The next one is that all rules and laws in the Gospel are black and white. We've been kind of talking about this the whole time. But we've got to start to see that there is a lot of gray area. That as one becomes more and more strengthened in the spirit and in maturity and experience, one begins to realize that in order to keep the spirit of the law, at times one will have to disobey the letter of the law. And we have to look back at the New Testament and see the times that the Savior was accused of breaking the Sabbath or breaking some other law in the law of Moses, when in reality he was breaking it, but he was keeping the higher spiritual law, trying to accomplish something else to further his Father's kingdom 
in the process. Next, just because someone with more experience in the church teaches something doesn't make it accurate. The false doctrines and teachings that I've heard over my time in the church, more times than not, they come from members who have been in the church for years and years. These members have learned incorrect things, but because of their experience and never being challenged on those things, have just assumed that they are correct. We've got to be careful. Just because brother so-and-so who's been in the church for 40 years or sister so-and-so who has taught Sunday school for 25 years, we've got to be careful that we don't just give people a free pass, that every single member in the church holds on to certain things that are probably not true. In fact, I would pretty much say across the board that every one of us hold on to something, some rule, some doctrine, some piece of history in the church, that is false. The next one is that the prophet and apostles must speak to Christ on a regular basis. Some of us have this idea that every morning Jesus shows up in President Monson's room and gives him a to-do list for the day. But then that doesn't leave President Monson much room to be human and to make mistakes that humans do. That's not the case. Our prophets and apostles have been called of God. They've been set apart to the sacred calling, and they have had special experiences which have called them into this holy apostleship. But to assume that they have conversations with the Savior daily or even weekly or monthly would, would probably not be realistic, even in comparison with other scriptures. If we look at the New Testament, we get just a glimpse of the highlights of what's going on. As we look at the Old Testament and see all the times that God spoke to Moses, we get the idea that it doesn't happen every single day, although as we read the story it may seem like that. But when we figure out how many years Moses lived and the experiences that we have of him speaking to God or relaying having spoken to God, then we are left with a very small amount of those experiences where God has spoken directly to his prophet. So we have to allow the prophets and apostles in general to be trying to do the best that they can under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but not necessarily receiving directions from the Savior each and every day, week, or month. Next one, everything the church teaches is all the available truth in the church history or the lives of its leaders. In other words, if you don't hear it in Sunday school, then it's not true. That's not the case. The church has a three-hour block. We have sacrament meeting, Sunday school, and then our different quorums and classes for young men's and young women's and relief society, priesthood. In that three hours, it is impossible to do both, teach the history of the church perfectly and inspire people to feel the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't mean that those are contradictory, but what I mean is that a lot of church history is mundane and does not teach the Spirit. Also, it can provide difficulty or challenging issues that one needs to work through. And by sharing those things and opening those up to members who have not have not discovered those can also be a spirit blocker for our, for our members of our church. So we've got to be sure that as we go through church on Sunday, we don't expect to be given all truth in the three-hour block. And once we understand that, it becomes perfectly acceptable that what we learn at church is to help us feel the spirit, to help us be strengthened, to take on another week, to help us be motivated to do those things that make us more Christ-like or help us become more Christ-like. And that if we leave church on Sunday and go home and look up things on the computer, that it's absolutely feasible and realistic and expected that one can learn more truth through the information that's available. That not all truth is found within the church or within its classes. Folks who get that, when they encounter new information, will not feel like the church lied to them or was dishonest with them or held back information from them. We've all got to understand it that way. Next, doctrine is a giant tent that includes policies, cultural standards, appendages, such as the word of wisdom, or 
all worthy males receiving the priesthood. I'll give you one example to use kind of as a backdrop for thinking about this. We often talk about that it was doctrine that Africans could not have the priesthood prior to 1978. And as church has gone on and as leaders of the church have delved into the early records of the church, they're no longer completely settled with that conclusion. In fact, they're not 100% sure exactly why that reason was. In fact, listen to Elder Holland here. Elder Holland, when asked by on a PBS interview, he was asked this question. I've talked to many blacks and many whites as well about the lingering folklore about why blacks couldn't have the priesthood. These are faithful Mormons who are delighted about this revelation and yet who feel something more should be said about the folklore and even possibly about the mysterious reasons for the ban itself, which was not a revelation. It was a practice. So if you could briefly address the concerns Mormon have, Mormons have about this folklore and what should be done. And this is Elder Holland's response. One clear-cut position is that the folklore must never be perpetuated. I have to concede my earlier colleagues, they, I'm sure in their own way, were doing the best they knew to give shape to the policy, to give context for it, to give even history to it. All I can say, however, well intended that the explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate and or wrong. It probably would have been advantageous to say nothing, to say we just don't know. And as with many religious matters, whatever was being done was done on the basis of faith at that time. But some explanations were given, and had been given for a lot of years. At the very least, there should be no effort to perpetuate those efforts to explain why the doctrine existed. I think to the extent that I know anything about it, as one of the newer and younger ones to come along, we simply do not know why that practice, that policy, that doctrine was in place. And so Elder Holland is very careful to insinuate that we're not really sure whether it's a practice, a policy, a doctrine. We don't know why it was in place. We just know the revelation came in 78 and ended it, and, and that they were grateful for that. And so we've got to be real careful that we don't make doctrine this giant tent. In fact, when we talk about doctrine, we can easily go back to the last two general conferences. If we go back two conferences ago, we would hear Elder Christofferson say this, At the same time, it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, not meant to be official or binding for the whole church. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is a prophet only when he is acting as such. Then, Elder Neil A. Anderson said one conference later, and obviously back-to-back conferences addressing the same issue, it obviously is important. Elder Anderson said a few questioned their faith, when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine, there is an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently, and by many, our doctrine is not difficult to find. So, understanding that, we, we need to be careful that we don't put across Elder McConkie's book, Mormon Doctrine, or Joseph Fielding Smith's Doctrines of Salvation, where those gentlemen who 95% of the book is probably right on, that whatever views they share that are not taught by the other members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve unitedly, that we ought to be careful at pushing those things across as doctrine. Doctrine is a very small thing. In our church, I think the easiest way to look at what doctrine is, is to look at the temple questions, to look at the articles of faith, and to look at Second Nephi chapter 31, where... Nephi specifically says that these things are the doctrine of Christ. 
Um, so that is where I would start off with. And I would be really careful if we get off of those things in trying to say something else is doctrine. Next, that we should follow the prophet blindly no matter what. We've talked about that already. It is up to each member to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and as they receive confirmations of what is said, then to follow it. Now that we've established that there are things taught within the church that are incorrect, that members set up false expectations and assumptions, and we begin to kind of see what those are and begin to have an idea of why they are set up and maybe how to start to begin to address them, the next thing is people have got to have resources for their questions to be answered. Now, there's lots of different places to go. I'll share a few. Some people aren't dealing with the emotion. They're simply wanting good answers to their questions. At this point, there's some places that they can go on the Internet. They can go to uh, the Foundation of Apologetic Information Research, which can be found at fair, F-A-I-R-L-D-S dot org, fairlds dot org. They can also go to a site, if they look up on a search engine, Jeff Lindsay and then Mormon, you'll come to Jeff Lindsay's website, which is www.jefflindsay.com. And he shares a lot of good information on what people question in the church and the answers for those. We also would find an organization called Shields, www.shields-research.org. So those are great places to go to to deal with the intellectual part of a faith crisis. Also, someone needs to be able to deal with the emotional part of it. And the way one receives emotional help is to go someplace where others have worked through it and to see how they did that so that they don't feel alone and can understand how this process of development of faith works. So one site I would recommend is stayLDS.com, S-T-A-Y-L-D-S.com. And there is a discussion board on there that they can join and they can conversate with other Latter-day Saints who are in similar places in their journey. There will be members there who no longer believe. There will be members there who completely firmly believe. And there will be lots in the middle who are still trying to find their way. But it is a way to kind of throw some questions out and be able to get some responses that are very caring and very tied into the emotional aspects of faith crisis. I would also recommend there's an interview online from a gentleman by the name of Terrell Givens, who was interviewed by a member of the church named John DeLynn on a site called mormonstories.org. Now, mormonstories.org, John DeLynn on that site, interviews people who absolutely tear the church down, and he interviews people who lift the church up and who proclaim faith. You've got to be careful. You don't want a member who's just beginning to encounter things, essentially having this site to, to find everything. Because it's difficult, if you can imagine going to school one day and your teacher at high school or in college or, or wherever throws six months of homework on you all at once and says, I need this done by next Monday. Well, all of a sudden, you're just deflated. The same is true when we encounter critical information about the church or about anything in life. If it's all thrown on us at once, we really struggle to put it all together. But if we get one item at a time, we tend to do a much better job of kind of figuring our way through it making sense of it, reconciling it, and moving on. If one goes on to mormonstories.org and listens to everything there, they're going to, to essentially have the whole can of worms open. But I would recommend them listening to Terrell Givens' interview. Terrell Givens is a very intelligent man. He's a member of the church. He has several times been on spots in TV documentaries on the Mormons where he has been kind of the LDS guy given the intellectual perspective of what we think and believe. 
He's very well spoken, and he does a very nice job of putting his his uh, spin or, or touch on how to deal with these types of issues. And so that's mormonstories.org, or do a, better yet, do a Google search of looking up Mormon Stories and Terrell Givens. T-E-R-R-Y-L, first name, G-I-V-E-N-S, last name. Also, you've got to find somebody in your ward or stake who can deal with this stuff. If you If you are not comfortable swimming in this or have not dealt with these issues in the past, you're going to be very unqualified to help somebody. And so sometimes you might be serving as a bishop or a stake president, and someone will come to you with an issue in their faith, and you have never encountered that issue before. It is best to help them find someone who can talk them, talk to them about it and help them work through it. And I'll share with you the reason why that is. Elder Marlon Jensen, who we spoke of earlier, said this. He said, often in the church, when someone comes with a bit of a prickly question, he'll be met with a bishop who, number one, doesn't know the answer. Number two, he snaps and says, get in line and don't question the prophet and get back and do your home teaching. And that isn't helpful in most cases. So we need to educate our leaders better. I think to be sympathetic and empathetic, to draw out these people where they are coming from, what's brought them to the point that they are at, what they have read, what they are thinking is, and try to understand them. Sometimes that alone is enough to help someone through a hard time. But beyond that, I think we really need to figure out a way to live a little bit with people who may never get completely settled. And so I would add to that, if you're a leader in the church and you're completely unfamiliar with these issues, you've got to find somebody out there within your ward or stake who can be of help to you in these kinds of situations. And I would I would pretty much assure you that every ward or stake has someone. And it's not it's not always an easy thing to find because these folks who are aware of this stuff, they don't make a big deal of talking about them because they don't want to open other people up to these issues. And so sometimes these folks are, are difficult to find. Lastly, we need to get comfortable, as Elder Jensen said, with those who are in the middle of this faith struggle. Again, realizing it is actually a progressive movement, not a regressive one. Elder Holland, when asked in the PBS interview, what about people who question the historicity of the Book of Mormon? Elder Holland said, there are plenty of people who question the historicity of the Book of Mormon, and they are firmly in this church, firmly in their mind in this church. And the church isn't going to take action against that. The church probably will be genuinely disappointed, but there isn't going to be action against that, not until it starts to be advocacy. Not only do I disbelieve in the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, but I want you to disbelieve. At that point, we're going to have a conversation. A little of that is more tolerated than I think a lot of people think it should be, but I think we want to be tolerant in any way we can. Patient, maybe, is a better word than tolerant. We want to be patient and charitable to the extent that we can. But there is a degree beyond which we can't go. So Elder Holland talks about the fact that there are we need to be more patient with these individuals who struggle. That they're they're working their way through this isn't something to just you know throw the book at them and send them away. It's not something to call them to repentance over. It's not something to tell them to get in line and start saying more prayers and and reading more scriptures. That that isn't helpful. We need to find ways to help them move forward by letting them know they're not alone by giving them good answers, by helping them straighten out perhaps in their mind some ways that they see things or think about things that just do not fit realistically within theology or doctrine or the gospel perspective. Lastly, I want to conclude by saying this is a tough subject. You can't have this discussion with someone who's unaware of the issues. So, for instance, I shared very little of what all the issues are 
And like I said, there are dozens of them. And the trouble is, is that you just can't go delving into them because it's not easy. So you almost have to stand back and deal with it from an emotional perspective, but you've got to find somebody who can deal with it on an intellectual standpoint as well. Also, recognize these people are hurting. Their whole world has been turned upside down. Their deck of cards have crashed. As the saying goes, the old house of cards has fallen. It really has. These folks no longer know what to believe. They may look upon the church with sarcasm or bitterness. They feel betrayed or have lost their trust. They see the church as hiding things. They see the church as not trusting them enough to have given them the full story. And so it's a very tender moment. It's a very difficult time. It's a very hard time to really know exactly what to say or do. But the more aware of it we are, the better able we are to help. God bless you. May the Lord warm your shoulders. And may I add... If anybody listens to this who's got this type of an issue, whether you're struggling or whether you're a leader who wants to help somebody who's struggling, please feel free to email me at realmormon at gmail.com, R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. God bless.